Welcome to episode 236 of The Art of Living Proactively. In this episode, I interview Dr. Angela Holiday Bell, a board certified physician and sleep specialist. And we discuss the importance of prioritizing sleep for overall health and well being, including how lack of sleep is linked to chronic diseases, Alzheimer's, and Dr. Holiday Bell provides science-based advice for improving sleep, such as maintaining a consistent wake-up time seven days a week, limiting exposure to blue light from electronics before bedtime, avoiding large meals too close to bed, and many other things as well. So a lot of today's episode is around sleep and how to improve your sleep. So that's today with Dr. Angela Holiday Bell. Please do subscribe if you do like this show. Why not leave us a review? It helps get the word out. More people find out about the show and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to another edition of The Art of Living Proactively. My guest today is Dr. Angela Holiday-Bell. How are you doing, Dr. Bell? Holiday-Bell. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you. And we're in Chicago today. Yes, yes. Coming from the Windy City. Is it windy today? You know, a little bit. A little bit. Um, not, not as bad as it, as it has been, though. We're finally warming up, getting into the summer months, so it actually feels pretty good outside today. So tell, tell me more about the... I know that you're, you're a sleep specialist. You're you know, obviously you're a board-certified physician. Tell me more about you and your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a board-certified physician. It's kind of one of those things that I decided at a very young age, at the age of six, that I was going to be a doctor um, and just kind of stuck with that. And it's really been my life's passion. Uh, but what I realized as I was going throughout medical training, specifically medical school and then residency, which is what we do after medical school, is it is very difficult to sleep while you're training to be a physician. Like You just don't get sleep. And I'm someone who has always had a deep loving relationship with sleep. I've always slept a lot. Uh, but I started to get to a point in training where at first I didn't have time to sleep. Um, and then even when I had time to sleep, I just seemingly couldn't. And I really suffered from pretty significant insomnia. And I saw what a toll it took on my life, both my mental health, physical health. I was just not the best version of myself by any means. And so it started with my own quest to fix it. And I was like, okay, I can't continue on like this. I have to fix it. And so I read all these books about sleep. I started volunteering at the sleep clinic in my hospital. And throughout that process, really fell in love with sleep and just the beauty and restoration that comes with sleep. And it's more than just feeling rested. It actually affects every single facet of your life and functioning. And once I started to put those changes into my life and my sleep life and saw how it affected me, I knew I had to, had to share with other people, with my patients, with my family and friends. Um, and then it just evolved over time to me really helping uh, individuals one-on-one, companies, corporations, and has really become something that I just take such joy and pride in doing. It's crazy, isn't it? The, the system that we have in many Western countries, like in, in America and England and many other countries, to train new doctors affects, well, yeah, it doesn't just affect their health. It destroys their health in many ways. It's, it's just, a, it's almost like, let's start you off with the worst possible health we can give you and let's see how yeah. you're going to cope with that. It's, it doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't make any sense. It's a conundrum, right? Like I spent, I spent so much of my time telling people, you have to take care of yourself. You have to get rest. You have to get sleep while I was being deprived of that, you know, on a daily basis. So it, it's definitely um, an interesting way of training. 
But I feel lucky, honestly, to have gone through that um, that journey and that process because when I am helping people, I come from a place of understanding because I went through it as opposed to like, oh, just do this because I learned that this is what you should do. I'm saying, no, do this because I went through the struggle. I know how hard it is and I know that these things can help. So luckily it helps me to relate to uh, people that I've helped with. I get the impression of all, I mean, there's many different health conditions people have, but sleep is, if people can improve their sleep, it's, it's going to have such a major effect on almost every condition, isn't it? 100%. So almost any significant chronic health condition and disease can be linked to insufficient sleep. So we think that we can start at the basic level of like just obesity and waking that we are seeing as, you know, an epidemic in our population. When you are not getting enough sleep, when you're sleep deprived, the hormone that causes you to feel hungry, ghrelin, is actually released in higher quantities. And the hormone that signals to your body that you're full, leptin, is released in lower quantities. You're also more likely to uh, reach for higher fat, higher sugar-containing foods. You're less likely to be active. So it, it creates a perfect storm for weight gain and obesity that then creates uh, an increased risk for all these other health conditions. In addition, when you're not getting enough sleep, your body actually is in a state of chronic stress with chronic cortisol release um, because your body is like, hey, if we are sacrificing what is meant to restore and replenish us every night, we must be under some type of threat. So let's be on high alert. Let's let's turn our uh, flight or fight systems on because there must be something that we're prepared to fight off. And that if that happens consistently, then that also increases inflammation in your body, which which weakens your heart and your blood vessels, leading to high blood pressure, leading to heart disease. Uh, your sugar regulation is uh, dampened in that you are less likely to be responsive to insulin. So it increases your risk of type 2 diabetes. It's so many things. Um, that occur as a result of lack of sleep that we're now starting to realize that, hey, maybe sleep is a big part of the puzzle of all of these things that we're seeing increase in our society. And maybe this is something that we need to address. Yeah. I, I read a few years ago what, when I was studying various areas of health and there was a period I was going through where I was reading a lot about sleep. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized I think I need to make sleep my number one priority. And and that was, wow. I can remember, it was December 2020. And ever wow. since then, I yeah, sleep has been my number one priority over almost anything, apart from my daughter, almost anything. <laughs> Love it. And I think that's a good way to think, right? Like, And I think that in our society, we're so used to this hustle and grind. You got to go. Sleep makes you lazy. I'll sleep when I die. Like all of these things that we've been taught in bed, in that it's it's so hardwired in us now that it takes a lot more to peel back the layers and really get people to understand that you should start your day with sleep in mind. Like you're going to be a more productive, more efficient, happier, healthier person if you're starting your day with being well rested and getting sufficient sleep. And then everything else is easier. Uh, but it really what I what I you know come to understand is it really takes a, a mindset shift to understand just how important sleep is. Yeah. One thing I'd like to get your opinion on, there's so many strange things about the way many countries in the West are set up. And one of the things that I find very strange is for people who are working at night, be mm. people in entertainment or they're working night shifts or so, and so on. And it seems almost everywhere that after nine, 10 o'clock, the only things that are open where you can get food is the worst possible food you can eat. 
And there yeah. doesn't seem to be anything healthy open after nine, 10 o'clock. And, and that is just so, well, it's not good to eat just before you go to bed anyway. But then mm -hmm. eat, eating really bad food just kind of compounds the whole thing, isn't it? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It just creates a vicious cycle. And I think it's one of those things that kind of feeds into the fact that if you just think about a night that maybe you stayed up particularly late or for people who've done, you know, an all-nighter or whatever, you're way more likely to reach for that bag of Doritos or that sugary snack. Like you, when you're in a state of sleep deprivation, you value instant gratification a lot more. So your ability to rationalize and think about long-term effects of things is significantly damp because the frontal lobe of your brain, the part that really uh, works on higher level judgment and executive functioning is not working properly. You're not getting enough sleep. So you kind of resort to more primitive actions in thinking. And so thinking about the fact that I really should be eating some fruit or some vegetables or something not as high in calories, sleep bad's out the window. And you're you're just like, whatever is going to give me that kind of instant gratification, that instant boost is what I'm reaching for. And so I think a lot of that is a response to the fact that most people are less likely to eat healthy anyways. Um, and then we're just feeding into a culture and society that places less value on that in general. So it really just, really is just a vicious cycle. Yeah. What would you say to people who, because a lot of people ask, after a late night out, they've been to a bar, to a club, whatever, and then they eat on the way home. And it's generally not a good idea to eat just before going to bed, is it? That's right. Yeah. So really, your your last big meal of the day, so like dinner, for instance, should be about three to four hours before bedtime. And that's because you got to think about what happens after you eat. You're stimulating your digestive system to send all of those digestive juices, flowing contractions of your system to digest and even pass the food down through your intestine. And that's a very active process. If you do that right before you're supposed to be going to sleep, when everything is supposed to be slowing down, then that can impact your ability to fall asleep because now one of your systems is being stimulated at a time that everything is supposed to be slowing down to prepare for sleep. So it's really not a good idea to provide your body with that much stimulation. Um, one caveat to that, one thing that is okay is a healthy bedtime snack that can be eaten about an hour before bedtime, but a very small snack rich in mostly protein and complex carbs. So something like a Greek yogurt with berries and nuts. Uh, because the protein helps to keep you satiated throughout the night. So you're less likely to wake up from like hunger pains. And then the complex carbs from like berries makes it less likely that you'll have a drop in blood sugar that can wake you up. So something like that is okay. But a large meal, dinner, it's not a good idea to have it close to bedtime. And what about for, I mean, because there's a lot of people do do night shifts now. Yeah. And that is not, it's not great for health in general. But what, what advice do you give? Well, one for people who are doing night shifts, but I guess in some ways, if you're doing consistent night shifts and you're always working at night, in many ways, that's better than if you're doing nights and then days and then nights and then days. And Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's best to not do night shifts, as you said, because the way that our circadian rhythm works, we have evolved to be in an alignment with the sun. So the, the rising and setting of the sun is a way that we have evolved. And that is a way that our bodies work best in the, the genes in our body. Every single single cell in our body has a circadian rhythm that it follows and it has evolved to be in alignment with the sun. So it's best if you are awake during the day and sleep. It. However, modern world doesn't really work like that. It is some people, you know, for one reason or another prefer or have to work night shift. 
If you do, it is still best to keep your schedule as consistent as possible to kind of retrain your circadian rhythm. Um, and it's difficult to do that if you're working mornings and then nights and then overnights and then evenings. Like it, your body can't really get adjusted to that. Now, the problem is that it, it's also not that realistic for life to say, okay, I'm going to always be awake at night and sleep during the day. Because what happens is when people are off of work, they want to be social. They want to hang out with friends and family who are awake during the day and sleep at night. And so people end up completely switching, switching their schedules back, um, which is definitely not good for their health. People who work night shifts on average sleep two to four hours less than people who work day shift, no matter what, even if they're off. And so what new research has found is uh, is using um, something called anchor sleep is healthier for people who work night shift. And what that means is anchoring your sleep to at least a four-hour period that you remain asleep, whether you are working nights or you're off, so that it gives your circadian rhythm something to to anchor itself or entrain itself around and you to be more normal on your days off. So for instance... I would like to use like nurses as a good example. Nurses who work the night shift may work 6 p.m. to uh, 6 a.m. They get off, they go to sleep at 7 a.m. on their days off, or I'm sorry, after they work, and then they wake up at 3 p.m. On their days off, they'd be trying to go to sleep uh, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 11 a.m. And that way, there's a four-hour period between 7 a.m. and 11 a.m. that they spend sleeping whether they're off or they're working so that they're brains are used to saying, okay, at this time period, we fall asleep. It makes it easier for them to sleep uh, on their days that they're off. And then it also allows them to have a more normal schedule. And that has been shown in research to be a lot healthier, to have a lot less uh, daytime fatigue or work fatigue, and allows them to be more productive and efficient as well. So you mentioned about um, circadian rhythm, and I would imagine there's a fair few people quite confused about what, what is the circadian rhythm? Sure. Yeah. And that's fair. So your circadian rhythm is that internal clock is another uh, term that we use for it. That is roughly about 24 hours and it dictates when you feel alert and when you feel sleepy throughout the day. So for most people, you wake up in the morning, you feel mostly alert, you have those, uh, you know, higher energy. And then as you get closer to nighttime, your normal bedtime, you start to feel sleepy, melatonin is released. All of that is kind of dictated by your circadian rhythm, which is encoded in your genes. So it's your body's internal clock that kind of tells you when you should feel awake and when you feel, should feel sleepy throughout. And this, we, we've talked about the, the dangers of people, you know, working night shift and, and so on. And from what I understand, in, in recent, there's more and more studies coming to light about linking lack of sleep with sort of degenerative diseases and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's uh, research coming out linking lack of sleep to the development of Alzheimer's disease. And the thought behind that is while you're sleeping, there are uh, there's an increase in cerebral spinal fluid. So there's fluid that covers your brain and your spinal cord. And that increase in fluid washes away toxins that accumulate throughout the day. Um, so basically, it cleans your brain. It's something called the lymphatic system in the brain. So you can just think of it as like your brain's cleaning service to help remove debris and toxins. When you're not getting enough sleep, you allow those toxins to accumulate. There are some proteins, uh, specifically called amyloid proteins, that are a marker of Alzheimer's disease that we see accumulate more in individuals who are chronically underslept in individuals who have Alzheimer's disease. So we think there's a connection between that and that you're just not allowing your brain and your body enough time to kind of wash away those toxins and start over the next day. Things just kind of build up on each other and accumulate. 
And the thing with things like Alzheimer's, it's not, it's not something that just happened a few weeks ago. It builds up over decades, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. And that's such an important point to remember because some people, what I often hear when I talk about, you know, the dangers and, you know, you should get sleep, people will say, oh, but I'm still fine after five hours of sleep. I get, you know, I can get by, you know, but give me four cups of coffee. I'm good. <laughs> but the problem is, over time, it's that chronic, you know, uh, state of being underslept that causes that chronic state of inflammation, causes an increased toxin uh, accumulation in your brain that you may not feel tomorrow, but over time, especially over years, it's going to lead to some things that are hard to uh, hard to fix. And you can't just be like, okay, let's just treat this Alzheimer's now, you know, it's here. So you really do have to think about the negative effects that are accumulating over time, as opposed to just how you feel on the What's your thoughts on wearable devices, you know, like the Aura, the Whoop and all of those types of things? Yeah, I think they're great um, if used appropriately. And so what I mean by that is I think they're great in that they are directing people's attention to be more aware of their sleep and their sleep habits and how much sleep they're getting. And I think that's great because having that awareness can be the first step you need to change. So similar uh, with the, uh, you know, the step counts in your watches, like being aware that I know I only, only had a couple thousand steps. Let me, you know, move a little more. I think that's great. Uh, so in general, I think they're great. I think they can become problematic in some instances when we get into things like sleep stages and people are so caught up in like, oh, how much REM sleep did I get last night? How much deep sleep? They're really not great at detecting the differences in sleep stages. And your body is going to make up for the amount of sleep in certain stages that you need. So you can't say, oh, tonight I need to make sure I get this much REM sleep and this much deep sleep. Like it's really a global picture of your overall sleep habits um, that dictate how much of that sleep you get each night. So I think it can make people a little too caught up in the weeds of things that are not super appropriate. And then some people who have chronic insomnia, if they fixate on that too much, it can actually cause like an anxiety around sleep that can make it worse. So I think it just depends on if you're just like, hey, I need I need to kind of keep this uh, an idea on in track of how much sleep I'm getting. And like, oh, when I pass some alcohol, let me see how that is affecting my sleep. Oh, it is a little bit more, you know, fractionated or I'm not getting as much. That's great. Um, and just not getting caught up in too many of the details that may not be as um, reliable with the wearables. You mentioned insomnia just now. So what would you say to people who are really struggling with insomnia and for whatever reason their doctor hasn't been able to help them? What what, what tips would you maybe give? Yeah. So first of all, I would say, you know, it is normal to have occasional nights of poor sleep. Everyone has them. I myself and I'm someone who takes sleep very, very seriously and try to set myself up for the best sleep every single night. Inevitably, I'm going to have nights where I don't sleep as well. But insomnia, and specifically chronic insomnia, is defined as difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or waking up earlier than desired at least three nights per week for at least three months. And once you get to that point, it typically is deeper than just, you know, the normal sleep hygiene rules, we call it. Uh, really, it's your relationship with sleep that becomes damaged. And typically, there is some type of anxiety or stress related to sleep uh, and negative thoughts about sleep that lead to negative behavior that really have to be uh, approached at a foundational level. So for, you know, you definitely want to start by prioritizing sleep. I, I say that to everyone. That's step number one. Making sleep a priority in your life can make a huge difference as opposed to leaving it to like, okay, once I'm done with every single thing else that I have to get through through the day and night, then I can sleep. No, make sleep a priority and that makes a significant difference. 
But if you're someone who has tried the typical things, and we can talk in a little bit about what typical things might look like, if you've talked to your physician about it or provider and you haven't been able to address your sleep issues, it likely is something deep for in the uh, best way to address chronic insomnia is actually through something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And it's a organized therapeutic approach that addresses the maladaptive thoughts that you have surrounding sleep and then the behaviors that occur as a result of that to kind of get at the underlying cause of your insomnia as opposed to putting a band-aid on it with like prescription sleep pills or something like that. And so do you find that most people who suffer insomnia, does CBTI useful for most people or is there some people that even that can't help? Yeah, for most people. So in research, it's been about 88 to 90 percent effective uh, for most individuals. So it is highly effective. It's actually shown to, been, to be just as effective as prescription sleep pills in terms of actually getting you to fall asleep, but longer lasting in terms of effectiveness. So it is superior to prescription sleep medications in terms of the effects. There are some individuals that don't have as significant of a benefit, um, and it could be for a number of reasons. There are sleep disorders that can be comorbid or occur at the same time as chronic insomnia, and so they often have to be addressed, you know, separately, um, as well as certain uh, mental health conditions, anxiety, depression. We all, we know that sleep is a huge factor when it comes to those things, and people with depression and anxiety typically have insomnia, and insomnia increases your risk of anxiety and depression, but just addressing the anxiety and depression often are not enough to address the insomnia. So again, it's one of those things that both need to be addressed. And there are some rare cases where certain sleep uh, medications can be helpful in addition to the CBTI. So I would say for the vast majority of people, CBTI is going to be the most effective, but there may need to be some additional things to fully address the, the whole. So you talked about sleep medication and then there's people taking melatonin and, and all sorts of things. And it's, I think there's a number of people who think, oh yeah, I've got this. I can just take this for the rest of my life and I'll be fine. But it's not really advised, is it? It's not, no. And you know, when you think about it, when you take a kind of a sleep pill, specifically like prescription sleep medications, or a lot of people will turn to like z or Benadryl, you're really just slapping a band-aid on a problem that will eventually fall off. I'll start with prescription sleep medications. I'm very vocal in the fact that, you know, like I said, in some rare instances, they can be helpful. For the vast majority of people, they're not going to give the benefit that you want because we're not addressing the underlying problem. They come often with side effects and then you tend to build up a tolerance to them in which you need higher and higher doses to get the same effect. My biggest problem with sleeping medications, though, is yes, they'll put you to sleep, but it's often more of a sedative state, meaning if anyone's ever had surgery before and you've had to go under anesthesia, were you technically sleep? Yes. Did you wake up feeling so rested and refreshed? Probably not. And that's because you're not going through those same beautifully coordinated sleep stages that natural sleep puts you in and through. And so if you wake up feeling groggy and tired still and all those things, is it really worth it? You know, that you slept for a little bit more time. So I think it's more important for people to uh, to work on the underlying causes of their sleep issues. Melatonin can be helpful in certain instances when your circadian rhythm, that internal clock is thrown off because that is the whole purpose of melatonin is kind of a just clock. So if you are traveling across time zones, it's excellent. I think if your sleep schedule is thrown off for some people over summer, they, you know, their schedules are thrown off a lot. They kind of shift a little bit. And then as the fall comes, they need to uh, switch back or similar with vacation. If they have a long vacation, they may get off track. I think it's actually great to use it for those instances short term to get things back on track. And then you should not need to use it really beyond that. 
the one medication, and I say medication because it's not really, but the one supplement that I love that helps sleep, it's not, a, it's not a sleep pill, it's not a magic bullet, but it can be conducive to sleep is magnesium glycinate. Mm. And magnesium is a naturally occurring mineral that is necessary in over 300 processes in our body. Um, and it helps to calm the nervous system, relax the muscles, it helps to uh, promote deeper quality sleep. So it's, an, it's a helpful adjunct, it's a helpful booster. It's not going to be a magic pill, but I think that that is something that can be helpful as a part of your sleep. And that, that can be helpful for people who have sort of leg cramps and stuff as well, can't it? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And we're starting to see a lot more magnesium deficiency in general in our population, just people not getting enough of that in their diet. So I think in general, there are so many things it can help with that that is something that could be worth adding. Like I personally take it every single day. Of course, you should speak with your medical provider before starting any new supplement or medication. But I think aside from that, the other ones are really not going to give you the answer that you're looking for in terms of your sleep issues. What would you say for people who maybe worry that they they wake up maybe two or three times in the night? Maybe it's to use the toilet or maybe it's just because of, I don't know, anxieties or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that's so common, right? A lot of people have trouble staying asleep. I I like to call it the 3 a.m. club because for so many people, it tends to happen around 3 a.m. <laughs> um, but I first start by saying that it is normal to wake up more than one time throughout the night. Um, I think just just giving people the permission to do that can actually take away some of that anxiety that comes like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I woke up. As you cycle throughout sleep stages, so on an average eight-hour night, which we're just saying average, some people need more than eight hours of sleep, you cycle through about five sleep cycles of light sleep, deeper sleep, dream sleep. Then there's a time in between where there's generally a light awakening that you go back into light sleep, deep sleep, or whatever. So it is normal to wake up multiple times throughout the night. Now, most of the time you're dusting your pillow, you're taking off the cover, you're sticking your leg out. You may not even recall the awakening, but you are awake to a certain extent. Uh, so, so people should be reassured that that is not the problem. The problem is when you cannot fall back asleep in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and so there are many things that can cause as you mentioned, getting up to use a restroom is super common, so it can be helpful to limit liquids before bedtime. For other reasons, caffeine and alcohol are not great for sleep, but they're also diuretics, meaning they cause you to urinate more. So if you're drinking lots of caffeine throughout the day, especially close to bedtime, or alcohol, that can lead to you waking to use restroom. Alcohol in particular. So people love to have a glass of wine as a nightcap and, you know, as a way to kind of wind down. And while it is sedative initially, so it makes you sleepy, it's actually broken down pretty quickly. And after it's broken down, it becomes a stimulant. So it's more likely to lead to middle of the night wakings and early morning wakings. So if you're someone who likes to do a nightcap before bed every night, you might want to rethink if you're waking up multiple times. And then the other thing is that anxiety or racing thoughts that she talked about. So oftentimes people will wake up for whatever reason, but now because they're awake, all of those thoughts kind of rush through their brain. All the things that they are worried about, need to think about to-do lists, keep them awake and from falling asleep at and so for those individuals, I recommend implementing a strategy called a worry journal, where you pick a time during the day or evening, ideally before bedtime, because you don't want to connect that with bed, but some amount of time, um, 10 to 15 minutes, where you take out a journal and you just write down anything that comes to your mind. So your to-do list, the things that you're concerned about, if there are action steps associated with them, write that down. So, oh, I'm, you know, worried about this work project that's due. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to make the outline and the next day I'm going to make the, you know, PowerPoint, whatever, be specific. The reason for that is it gives your brain dedicated time to process those thoughts 
so that it doesn't try to do that at night. Because at night, you don't have the distractions of the day that keep you from processing it. So your brain utilizes that time to say, okay, now we have time to ourselves. Let's think about all these things that we haven't had time to think about. When you give yourself that dedicate, dedicated time to process it, it's less likely to do that. So I've seen that be a very helpful solution for individuals who have those racing thoughts that keep them up. Right. We touched upon um, wearables before, but there's also devices such as the, was it, eight sleep and all these various things that sort of temperature control. What, what would you think yeah. of those? I love them. I think they're great uh, for multiple reasons. So the first thing is, your body's temperature has actually decreased by one to three degrees in order to facilitate the transition to and maintenance of sleep. In the early morning hours, your body temperature starts to increase and that signals to your body that it's time to wake up. So really that lower body temperature is what helps uh, uh, what helps to permit sleep to come on and keep you in the deeper stages of sleep. So it's important that you keep your sleep space cool. So you can do that by turning down your thermostat. Research actually recommends somewhere between 62 to 67 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a good range. For some people, they're like, oh my gosh, that's freezing. <laughs> and you don't want to be uncomfortable. So I always say, turn your temperature down one to two degrees lower than what's comfortable for you during the day and see how you sleep. But in addition, some people are hot sleepers and they kind of collect or absorb heat as they sleep. And so they warm up prematurely, which can lead to broken sleep. So the system, like the aid sleep and the other cooling systems helps to keep your body's temperature lower in a, in a um, space that's more conducive to sleep. So I think that they're great to use. There's, there's things called sleep hygiene routines, isn't there? What, um, could you give people some ideas of things that they could implement in a sleep hygiene routine to, to improve their sleep? Absolutely. So sleep hygiene is exactly what it sounds like, right? Like we, we have normal hygiene. You take a shower, you brush your teeth, the things that you use to maintain yourself in good working conditions, same thing for your sleep. And there are some rules that you should live by the vast majority of the time or as much as possible. The first thing is to wake up at the same time every day. Um, I tell people this and they're like, okay, every day. So Monday through Friday. I'm like, no, there are seven days of the week. So every day means Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday because that internal clock, your circadian rhythm does not have weekends off. So you really need that consistency for your brain to learn when to send those alerting factors. In addition, it also helps the melatonin release. So keep the same wake time every single day. Um, getting some natural light exposure within one hour of waking in the mornings is also super helpful because light is the strongest factor influencing your circadian rhythm in a way that causes you to be alert and it automatically shuts off the melatonin release. What that does is stabilizes your circadian rhythm to say, okay, melatonin shuts off at this time and then we start to produce it again at this time at night and really helps to regulate things. In addition, it causes a boost of serotonin, which is needed for melatonin release. So it really helps to just stabilize everything uh, very well. So getting that natural light exposure within one hour of waking. Caffeine is huge. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have. I personally love coffee. I drink it every single day. I think it's great. Um, However, caffeine that we use for its stimulating and alerting properties has a long half of about five hours. And the half-life is the amount of time it takes for half of the amount you consumed to be excreted from your system. So if you were to drink a 400 milligram cup of coffee, let's say at noon, then at 5 p.m., 200 milligrams is still in your system. And at 10 p.m., 100 milligrams is still in your system. So that absolutely could be interfering with your ability to fall and stay asleep. Um, People metabolize caffeine differently. So some are quicker than others. So you really have to, you know, adjust for what, what your sensitivity is. But a good rule of thumb is to use the smallest 
effective dose. So if 200 milligrams makes you more awake and alert, don't drink 400 milligrams worth and then try to limit it afternoon so that it's not really interfering with your sleep as much. Um, the other, I would say my last two is to avoid light exposure close to your bedtime. So we already said light is the strongest factor influencing your circadian rhythm, telling you to be alert. So if you are exposing yourself to light close to your bedtime, it's doing the same thing. It's telling you it's time to be awake and alert. It must be daytime because this is light and it's delaying your melatonin. So that means even the lights that you exist in in your normal room lighting is going to be enough to delay your natural melatonin release. So dimming the lights using table side lamps, low emission lights, one to two hours before bedtime will help to promote your natural melatonin release. And then that blue wavelength of light in particular that is emitted from electronics like your telephone, tablet, television has the strongest of all the wavelengths of light influencing your circadian rhythm. So you definitely want to avoid those within an hour uh, before bedtime. And then having a bedtime routine, I cannot uh, express enough how important that is. A 45 to 60 minute routine that you do every single night before bed, which helps to calm your mind, get your body prepared for sleep. It helps to make the sleep process more efficient in that once you start doing those things, your brain has already connected that process, that um, routine to sleep. So as soon as you start dimming the lights and turning on music and lighting a candle and reading a book, your brain is like, oh, let's say this is not release because we know that this must mean that we're falling asleep. Um, and then there's been some research to show that it actually is uh, helpful against pre- uh, protecting you against stress. So there are some uh, individuals that they had us put them up into those who followed a consistent bedtime routine and those who did not. It then showed them purposefully stressful inducing uh, um, videos right before going to sleep. And found that those who consistently engaged in a bedtime routine had less sleep disturbances than those who did. So it really protects you against it because your brain is connecting that routine to sleep. It helps you to unwind. It allows those brain waves to slow down and it's much more uh, conducive to sleep. So following those sleep hygiene tips will work wonders for the majority of people with sleep issues. And the thing with all those sleep hygiene tips you just gave, I mean, this whole podcast is about being proactive around health. And that's exactly what that is, isn't it? Absolutely. It is taking the bull by the horns, being proactive, setting your day and night up for better sleep, as opposed to just uh, responding to sleep issues, right? It's putting yourself in a position to get the sleep that you deserve uh, and that you desire every night so that you're not having to come in on the back end and try to clean up when you're not getting enough sleep. What are your, your thoughts on proactivity and health? I think it's so important. I really think that's the way that we should live life. I think You know, you brought up the way that our medical system is in many places. And I think that one issue with our medical system in general is that it's been very reactive. So now you have this disease or this problem, we're going to react by giving you some, you know, prescriptions or giving you whatever, as opposed to preventative in that we stop these things from happening in the first place. And I think if we switched our mindset to being proactive and preventative, instead, we would alleviate so many of the problems that we see. And so luckily for many people, sleep is one of those things that's within your control that you can be proactive about, that you can be uh, preventative about. And that in turn will help you to prevent a lot of these other, you know, uh, downstream health consequences. So I think in general, with everything when it comes to your health and in life, being proactive, having a plan, preventing things from happening is going to be the best way to address it. Some people listening might be thinking, well, that just sounds too much. There's so many things in that sleep hygiene. I can't do all of that. Well, if that, yeah, we want to start maybe getting them to do maybe one thing at a time. How would you suggest people kind of ease into something like that? Yeah. And I think, you know, 
I always try to tell people to take it slow. You don't have to revamp your entire routine in one night because that's going to be hard to do. I think it's similar if you're doing any type of diet or exercise. You should build up. Like you can start slow and then build up. So I, even on my website, have a seven day um a seven day kind of sleep makeover where every day we just add a new habit so that it's something that you're doing slowly. But I always start with the first thing and this is more mindset is prioritizing sleep. If you just wake up and say, okay, what, what are, what's a way that I can help myself to sleep better at night and in, in saying, okay, I require eight hours of sleep for these eight hours of sleeping. And then I'm going to schedule everything else around that time. That honestly makes the biggest difference in people. And then the second thing is waking up at the same time every day. If you can stick to those two things for the first one to two weeks, I think you'll actually see significant changes and then build on that with all of the other habits. And over time, you will have a revamped routine that is a lot more uh, conducive to sleep. You know, one thing I find interesting, I guess I could say, is a word I could use in some of the clients that I help. And, and often I ask them about how their energy is during the day and how many people don't link the you know, they're having sort of drops in energy through the day and they don't connect that with their with their poor sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think for, for so long, it's just been something that's just been in the back of our minds. It's not important that people don't realize, like I've had, pe- you know, patients come to me like, oh, I'm so fatigued. I'm so tired. Of it. I don't know why. Can you give me something for this? Like, is there a supplement I can take? And I'll say, well, well, how are you sleeping at night? Oh, I sleep five hours. I don't think I wake up multiple times. <laughs> Like, yeah, well, let's start there. Let's figure that out. But like you said, most people have not even connected it because there's such a disconnect between sleep and all these other things because sleep, like I said, makes you lazy and all people not dying. I have too much to do to sleep. And sleep's not that important that they don't realize just how much it is affecting them. Changing the subject slightly, but it's not really because I know your answer to this already, but is there a book that's really moved you for any reason? Yes. And not surprisingly, I know it may sound boring to some, but Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, um, it was a life-changing book for me. That was the first book that I read when I was like, what is going on? I need to fix my sleep. Like I have, I can't live like this. I read his book and it opened up a new world of sleep to me and the importance of sleep and the effects of sleep. Um, and so it was really something that was just so enlightening and things that even as a physician, even as a doctor, things that I was not aware of or was not taught, that it really just changed my outlook on life and that I was like, oh, no, we need to start with sleep and then everything else will fall into place. And I've lived my life that way for many years since then. So absolutely, that's by far one of my favorite books. I recommend anyone grabbing a copy um, because it is very is there anything around sleep and the science around sleep that you've sort of changed your mind on or had different thoughts on in the last few years? Um, oh, that's a good question. Anything that I have changed my mind over? Uh, you know, so I would say I, I was not. So when I first started my sleep journey and started helping people with sleep, Sleep was more about what happened at night, right? It was like, okay, you need to have this bedtime routine. Um, you need to do all these things and this is how you sleep. And over the past, I would say, couple of years, I've really shifted a lot of my own sleep habits and my sleep recommendations to the day because so much of what happens during your day is what impacts your sleep at night. You sleep for, you know, eight hours on average, but then there's other 16 hours of the day that impact how you sleep at night. So when I work with individuals, we talk about stress management, anxiety management, setting up your work day in a way that's more uh, 
that's less stressful and that's more pleasant because all of those things factor into how you sleep at night. And so instead of looking at it as it's like segmented time of day, it's kind of this whole person, whole day picture that I think has been a lot more helpful in addressing the full picture as opposed to this one kind of aspect. And what would you say about um, people who maybe don't move enough, don't get enough movement exercise in, in relation yeah. to sleep? Yeah, that can definitely impact sleep. So research has shown that physical activity leads to deeper sleep. So you do get more of that deep, better quality sleep when you're being physically active. So trying to engage in some sort of physical activity every day is very important. I like to get people to do, you know, things that incorporate multiple healthy sleep habits at once. So getting natural sunlight by going on a walk outside for 20 to 30 minutes, getting physical activity at the same time. Both of those things are going to be very helpful for sleep. There are some studies that suggest not sleep, not uh, exercising too close to bedtime because exercise can increase your body temperature and it can cause take longer for it to drop. And as I mentioned, your body temperature has to drop to facilitate the transition to sleep. Uh, but by and large, research has shown that being active, no matter what time of the day, is going to be better for sleep than not being active at all. So if you have a tight schedule, if it's hard to get it, just trying to get it in as much as you can. Again, small habits, but build on themselves. But for many aspects of your health, including your sleep, physical activity is going to be a very important part. If people want to find out more about you and maybe to, to work with you, where, where would they go? Yeah, so you can go to my website at www.thesolutionissleep.com. I work with individuals who have chronic insomnia through the delivery of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So we have one-on-one consultations with me as well as an online course to do it at kind of a self-guided pace. I also have been working with corporations at large to help their workforce sleep better because we know that sleep is linked to productivity and mood and retention and workplace relationships that are all important for the workplace experience. So really coming in and changing the culture of sleep and rest in the workplace and giving people actionable tips on how to improve their sleep. In addition, I do have a my first book coming out, Sleeping on the Job, Proven Strategies to Optimize Workplace Performance and Personal Well-Being Through Better Sleep, where I really break down how interrelated the sleep and work relationship uh, relationship is. So work affects your sleep and how you sleep affects your work. But then specifically how to build your work day, e- uh, you know, evening and night in a way that's going to be best for sleep. And I do that via very specific, actionable things that you can start to implement right away. So we get the sleep you deserve and be the worker that you need as well. And and what you were just talking about, are you mostly working with people sort of in the Chicago area or is it nationally or globally or? Yeah, yeah, globally. So I I, I do deliver most of my services via my online platform. Um, so I work with individuals all over the world. I've done Africa, Australia, um, and then as well as in person, like the conferences and companies I've worked with, I've done that virtually as well as in person. So I kind of do it wherever it is necessary. Well, finally, do you have a, a quotation that you particularly like? I do. I'm going to read it so I can make sure that I do not mess it up. But my favorite quote is, instead of asking, have I worked hard enough to deserve rest? I've started asking, have I rested enough to do my most loving, meaningful, meaningful work? And the, that's by Nicola Jane Hobbs. And I love that quote because I think that a lot of people view rest and sleep as this reward they get once they work hard enough or if they, they've done enough of the other thing, then they can reward themselves with sleep. But understanding that 
it should start with sleep. And once you're rested, you can be your best self, your most motivated, productive, efficient, happy self that will then produce your best work. So you deserve to sleep. You don't have to earn it. Sleep is not a luxury that only a few should be able to afford. It should be afforded to everyone. And then from that can come your most meaningful work. Is there anything about sleep I haven't asked you about that you think people should know? Um, let's see. Is there anything... Yeah, so I think one thing I want to address, and it's, it's one of my favorite things to talk about, is napping. Um, because a lot of people will say, you know, is it okay to nap? Uh, how do I do that? Does that interfere with my sleep? And and I I like to give people permission in a way that I I love nap. So whenever I don't have clinical duties, I nap every single day. I think napping is great if done responsibly, just like anything else. And so you know, napping helps to provide a boosting your mood and productivity and creativity and problem solving. Uh, throughout the day. So it can be a great addition to your day. The key is to keep it short. So no more than 20 to 30 minutes, because if you nap longer than that, you run the risk of getting into deeper stages of sleep that can make you wake up feeling groggy and disoriented. We call that sleep inertia, uh, which can be more problematic than how tired you felt before the nap. Uh, you also want to do it earlier in the day, sometime before 3 p.m. so that it doesn't steal from your sleep drive and make it more difficult to fall asleep. And then if you're someone who suffers from chronic insomnia and you're like, I've tried the sleep hygiene things, like I just cannot get my sleep on track, I would actually avoid napping altogether until your sleep is on track and then adding in healthy power naps once you're in a better spot with your sleep. Well, Dr. Holiday Bell, it's been great information. I'm sure it's going to be really helpful to many people. So thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime I can talk about sleep, I am it. So thank you again for having me on the show. Next week is episode 237 with Jeff Secondor. Jeff is a 68-year-old competitive cyclist who is training to break the US hour record for the 70 to 74 age group by the year 2025. And we discuss Jeff's, Jeff's passion for cycling, how he uses coaching to train efficiently and avoid injury. And he also talks about how he applies a coaching model to his scuba diving certification business to help students improve not just their diving skills, but their overall well-being. And throughout the episode, we talk about living proactively by seeking out new challenges, helping yeah, others find purpose, and knowing when to quit and when to persist. So that's next week's episode 237 with Jeff Secondor. If you've enjoyed this episode with Dr. Angela Holliday-Bell, please do subscribe so you can find out and you can automatically get new episodes downloaded onto your phone. Please leave us a review and I hope you have a great week.